Amen. Yeah, I know why he doesn't give you problems. He's always giving me problems. Running to your neighbor's house. Hallelujah. Hey, hallelujah. All right, let's turn our Bibles today to John, the second chapter. John, the second chapter. One of the most notable miracles or memorable miracles, I would say, to people. Many have heard about the water being turned into wine. And uh, I'm going to entitle tonight's message and tomorrow, next week's message, and maybe the following week. I'm going to entitle it, Just Do It. You know, let's, let's analyze the adversaries of our life. First of all, Satan in John, the 12th chapter, has been cast out. The prince of the power of this world have been cast out. In other words, he has been dethroned. Jesus declares before he sends his disciples that all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now you can go. So that excludes any areas of the world, earth, creation, as well as angelic principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, and rulers in heavenly places to have any, all power, under the earth, above the earth, and on the earth itself, whether designated or authorized, now has been returned to Jesus Christ. And then when we look at things in life, whether mountains, storms, those become powerless if you as a believer will use your faith like God. And then need. Need may seem like it can be your master, but Jesus simply took what he had, he blessed it, and he fed a multitude of 5,000 men plus women and children with a few loaves and a few fishes, symbolizing or indicating to you and I the works that he did we shall do also. We must never fear need because need really has nothing in it that we should fear when we possess a source called faith. So, and then about ourselves, Paul said that we have been enabled, delivered from sin, that sin should have no more dominion over us. Now, we have control of our individual lives. It's up to you and I. Your body will not do anything except you allow it to happen. Then we have our mind. These are all battlefields that we fight, enemies that we may wrestle with. But the Bible says pulling down strongholds, bringing into captivity every thought that is contrary to Christ and be ready to respond to it if there is any lag, any resistance whatsoever. Now you have the ability to control the human mind and the imagination that it does not position itself to be the enemy of your faith or the enemy of God. So when I say tonight, just do it, what I mean is, just do it. Why would you not do it? Well, this, no, we just dealt with all of your excuses. They're done. They're powerless. Now the only thing you have to overcome is that spirit of compliance and complacency, satisfaction with less than what God has given you in Christ. And that is a spirit that man has to get himself rid of. Now, 
John, the second chapter. And it says in verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they were wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Hey, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servant, Whatsoever he saith unto you, you do. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three fur skins, anywhere from 30 to 50 gallons of water apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear. When the governor of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not from whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the wine called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. Now when we have well drunk or when we have finally got drunk, then that which is worse but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And it really doesn't mean that they got drunk. Because in these seven, these six water pots of purifying was the purification of the Levite priesthood. In other words, every priest or some priest was invited to every wedding. What took place at that wedding represented the priest authority. His uh, what would you say, uh, acceptance of their lifestyle there. And in these seven water pots for purification, what were they purifying? They weren't washing their hands in it. They weren't washing the dishes. What was left to purify? The wine that was mixed to bring to the wedding party. Why was the wine purified? Because in the redness of wine, Proverbs says there is the sting or the bite of the adder or the serpent. So in order to take away that bite or that sting, the, wad, the wine was diluted enough to make sure that when the priest blessed the wine and the food, as well as the ceremony, that there was no transgression that was committed under the influence of that alcohol that could be traced to him. In other words, if a man got drunk by the wine that that priest blessed, that sin came upon the priest. So these were six water pots of purifying. Did Jesus drink wine? He drank diluted wine. He drank wine that was freshly squeezed. It's not recorded that he drank fermented wine. Well, that he gave it to him at the Last Supper. The Bible says that a friend would never give another brother or a friend a drink that had, when it was, had any bite or when the serpent had taken place or when it was, as it were, red in the cup. In other words, a friend would never deceive another friend into thinking that what he was being presented was all right. 
So when people say, well, Jesus drank wine, so I'll drink wine. You don't even know what Jesus did. If you just live his life, then we allow you to do the other things that you think he did. You can't even get up and pray for one hour a day, let alone run the marathon of sinlessness. Now, let's move on. Hallelujah. Now, Jesus says these five words to these men. His mother says, do whatever he says to you to do. Do whatever he says for you to do. Then, doing or hearing that word, that option, he charges and it enables them to make a choice. They have a choice. We can do what Jesus told us to do. Though it seems foolish, though it seems senseless, we would not fill it first without putting wine in it, and then we could fill it up. Why did they fill it to the brim? They're taking away every opportunity. You understand they're taking away every opportunity for Jesus to add anything to it. You want water? We're going to put the pressure on you. They put the water to the brim. There was no question he's not mixing anything. Nobody's putting anything in these purifying pots but water. They knew what was supposed to transpire. He never did it, so they took away his opportunity. But these men hear a word from his mother. Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says for you to do, do it. He hears, they hear a word. That is the beginning of the transformation of circumstances, situations, needs, problems, battles, is first, we need to have a word from God. Too many people just presumptuously go out. Or you hear this, oh, I know that, I'm going to do it. Well, there's something interesting about faith. Faith will enable you to obtain a promise, but it doesn't mean that it settles into your life that you never need to reinforce it or reforify it. That's why it says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Peter said, I know you know these things, but it's my job to put you into remembrance to stir up your pure minds. Faith doesn't come from hearing or having heard. It comes from a perpetual way of life of abiding in the word. Jesus said, if you want answered prayer, let my word abide in you and you abide in it. Anything less than that brings options of failure. Amen. All right. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to have a word from God. Somebody say a word from God. Now let me ask you something. There are two types of the word of God. There is the logos or the written word of God. Now, that is inspired by the Holy Ghost. That is uh, in, written by men that are inspired by the Holy Ghost. None of it is for any personal revelation. In other words, every scripture is for everybody. And all, all of the promises contained in there are yea and amen. Now, let me ask you, if that is the written word of God, there is also what we would call the rhema word of God, where people hear but then somewhere in the point of reading or somebody proclaiming it, it takes on the nature of God and it becomes, as it were, the voice of God, the rhema God, the life-infused word. Now, the thing of it is, is that every word has that rhema word in it. 
but how can we as Christians extract it? How could we extract the voice of God from the logos of God or from the inspired word of God? Anybody have any ideas? Come on, Philip. Oh, please. Yes, you do. Who said that? Meditation. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Bob, for the confirmation. Meditation. Remember when Timothy received the word of God from the prophets and the presbytery, and Paul said this, meditate upon things that thy profiting. See, there is profitable victory, success in every word that comes from God. But even though a prophet speaks it, it's still just the word of the prophet unless you have faith enough to believe that it was the voice of God. And sometimes, like Timothy, have been raised under fathers, knowing the presbytery, even though it was under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he really never heard it that way. So Paul writes back to him and says, you know what, you need to meditate upon this so that thy profiting may appear unto every, uh, to every person and that you may war a good warfare. In other words, you can't go to warfare just having a man's word on it. You need to have God's word on it. Amen? And even if a prophet delivers it, lots of times you still need to hear the word in the word that the prophet spoke. You need to hear the voice of God that the prophet delivered. Meditation is one of the ways that we do that. And there is a voice within the voice. In Proverbs, the sixth chapter, if I could have that on the screen, and I think it's verse 16, Proverbs 6, 16, we'll have this, and this confirms what Steve and Bob have said. And it says, these six things, no, let's go down to uh, 18. Let's go up to 14. I'm trying to find out when, uh, when your mother and father speak, bind them about your neck. Uh, I ought to have my Bible. You got that there, John? Hey, thank you, John. Proverbs, the sixth chapter, and... Uh, do, 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 do. Twenty, there you go. My son, keep thy father's commandment. Forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them upon thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee, and when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee, and when thou awakest, it shall, what? Talk with thee. Talk with thee. So there is a voice within a voice. Amen? There is a word within a word. Right? So the way that we separate them is we meditate on it. What does meditate mean? doesn't mean cross your legs and hum doesn't mean buy incense, doesn't mean dress in a, a piece of linen, it doesn't mean become a guru, guru, shave your head, it doesn't mean any of that. It means to do over and over and over. It means to run it through your mind, it means to speak it over and over and over. It doesn't mean to memorize it, it means to go over and over and over. 
if you start memorizing, sometimes you mismemorize what's being said. Put your focus on what is written. Keep reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it. The Bible tells Joshua, Joshua, look, let not this word, what word? The words that Moses has spoken. I have spoken to Moses. Don't let the words that I have spoken to Moses depart out of the midst of you. Keep them in the midst of you. Meditate upon them day and night. Then shalt thou make thy way successful. In other words, even Joshua, even though he had the law of God, even though God spoke from a mountain, even though God pinned him with his finger upon a table of stones, there was a word in a word. Could I get an amen? So we want to make sure that we get a word from God. You say, oh, I just don't have time. Then fail. Let your water be water. Let your life be normal. Let it never transform or be or transitioned by God. Stay where you're at. Fight your own circumstances. Drown in your situations. Let needs swallow you up. Let disease eat away your life and, link, and shorten your day. Do just drown in your own life. I thought you were here to preach in God's stead. Saith the Lord. Choose life for death. But make up your mind. But don't complain because you're sitting in your own dung and you're too lazy to get up. Get a word from God. Well, I just don't. It takes as much time to fail as it does to succeed. Listen, this is the spirit that I'm talking about that needs to be broken over the kingdom. This compromising, which means this. It means self-satisfied spirit that will twist anything to make itself comfortable in its misery. Come on. Isn't that a terrible thing that we seek to find a way to, some way like this. Well, God told me he put this disease on me that I can learn how to be uh, in ministry. Where is that in the Bible? Oh, it's in your compromisable concordance. That's where it's at. It's not in God. It's in you. And you have to break that spirit because it is a spirit of antichrist. It does not reflect Jesus. It reflects that which is anti-truth. Yeah, had nothing to do with Jesus. We reflect a Jesus in a carnival mirror. When you look at him, it's so distorted, you could never follow it. Amen? You hear people say this, well, they're Christians. I'm going to heaven too. Well, how could they do that without being convicted by your life? They're seeing this carnival Jesus reflected in your life, and that's wrong. Now you say, oh, well, Pastor, you, I, at, what? It is, thank you, the truth. So the first thing we need to do is we need to get a word from God. <clears throat> Just get a word from God. Don't be late. Nobody's going to save you but Jesus. Amen. Your church is not going to save you. Jesus is going to save you. Nobody's going to pray you through except you. 
Nobody's going to get a breakthrough but you. Come on. Nobody's going to put their hand to something, God bless it, but you. Come on. Nobody's going to be able to get you open or free or loose except you. Nobody can touch his garment in your place. Come on. You're just going to have to own up. Either you want to be who you are, live like you're living, or you want to live the God life. Whatever you want to do, you get to do. But the Bible says that the heart above all things is most deceptive. In other words, it'll tell you, I want to, and it will do nothing. What is that? That is the spirit of antichrist and compromise. We'll twist anything to make ourselves satisfied, justified in our misery. And it's just wrong. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad you come on a Wednesday night? Hallelujah. Now, and then it says this. And it says, and then the word if. Somebody say if. If. Oh, wow, that word if. Let me see your scripture there, Philip. You got it in John, the second chapter? Are you reading some fishing magazine? John, you are, Lord G money, come on. Oh, good night, I'm telling you. Did your mother have problems with you like this? Yes. I, I figured it didn't just happen since you've been saved. Hallelujah. Yeah, hallelujah. Then it goes on down the second chapter. Do, do, do. Lord, that's the fourth chapter. What's all these notes in here? Is that what you preach? <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, let me see. It says, and his mother said unto him, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And then they brought six water pots and every man uh, to the purifying of the Jews and containing two or three first skins apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots and if, and they filled them to the brim and he said to them draw out of it and take it to the governor and they uh, bear it and when the ruler of the feast had tasted and made it wine Jesus knew that it was but he knew that the the servant where it came from but the servants did know and the governor knew of the feast did not know it now I wrote in here that that we are just supposed to do it but then I found a, a word, and it meant if. That word, if. You know what that means, Philip? If. Jesus said, fill the water pots. Now, they had a choice. What if they would have said, if? Because everybody says, if. Now, when we speak about getting a word from God, we need to realize that every word of God is followed with an if. In other words, the word if means to create a condition. It means to set a requirement. It means to put out a stipulation. It means an uncertain possibility based upon an individual. Something that can happen with supporting actions or concerns. So, we need to get a word from God. Could I get an amen? And if we get a word from God, then we have to follow it through with an action. Not only did they fill it with it, 
That was the word. Then he says this, draw out from it and do it. What if we don't follow through with it? What if we do nothing with what God has given to us? Then the circumstances will never change. Because the word that God speaks can only come to pass if it has supporting action from the hearer. Could I get an amen? Absolutely. All right. Life is filled with valleys and mountains. Life is filled with valleys and mountains. No matter where you go, the train is up and down. So is life itself. Life is not always good. Sometimes evil happens. But if you stay in evil, then you live in a valley. And you can't stay in good times because you have to move forward in life. You can't just camp out at one place that God has blessed you. So life is filled with valleys and mountains. Valleys are always places that we make choices or decisions. If we don't make decisions in our valleys, we live in them. Right? So we have to make choices in life that will bring us out of where we are and take us to where God wants us to be. Come on. Hallelujah. Life deals to us each day lots of choices. These choices will lead us into God's victory or if we don't take them, they will imprison us to our catastrophes, tribulations, hardships, and needs. So we are to choose and so that we can make decisions that we can move on with God, experience the mountains, share with others, face the valleys, and be victorious because of God. Now, notice what happens. That when we do the word, now this is going to frighten some of us. When we do the word, there is an automatic transformation from something natural to something supernatural. Whenever there is a disobedience to scriptures, in other words, there is a gathering of information. There is an accumulation and memorization of scripture, but no application. What happens? We are never transformed. We are Christians, but they never see Christ. We are Christians, and we never see Christ. We have knowledge of Christ, so this ends up being the struggle of us trying to become the true man of righteousness and holiness. We struggle to keep our head above sin every day. We struggle with old things that have defeated us, and they are easily sins, easy sins that beset us. There are no heavy sins. Just get that out of your mind. Our light affliction is but for a moment. You know, there's nothing hard about what the enemy throws against you. Oh, yes, I've just had a... You, you've never suffered to the dying of yourself for sin. So you may think it's hard. It's not hard. It's only hard because we refuse to operate or act on the word. Amen. 
And so our circumstances always dominate us. Or we're always trying to get ahead, or we're always trying to manipulate, or we're always trying to come up with an answer. There are no answers against sin but God. Amen? Amen. And so when we talk about and we get a word, it automatically transforms our life. It's like this. You know, most of the church could be healed by simply reading the Bible. Turn to Proverbs 4.20, quick before they get mad. Dr. Rosen, turn to Psalms 107 and verse 20. Okay, Phil, you got yours? Okay. There, Psalms 4, okay. Psalms 420. My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ears to my sayings. Let them they depart from thine eyes, but keep in them the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them, and health to all their, to all their, to all their, to all their, because when you do so, you will keep your heart, and out of your heart comes the issues of life. Dr. Obalu, Psalms 107, verse 20 says this. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from all their destruction. Now, what is in the scripture? Somebody say healing. Just healing. Somebody say healing. 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 You say, well, well, I need to do this. I know you need to do that. But when you start reading the word, his desires will become your desires. He gives you the desires of your heart. Amen? Amen. You'll be liable to wake up one day and hate pizza. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. Casanos would hate it, but it'd be nice for your health. See, we are constantly trying to make ourselves something that only Scripture can make us. It's the truth. See, we are trying to work the work of God and come up with a supernatural being. You are not God. And only God can do what God can do in your life. Yeah, get up every day, read the Bible. Read it. Keep it in front of your eyes. Keep it in the midst of your heart. And pretty soon, you know what? You start reading it enough, you'll start talking like it. You ever heard anybody talk about the newscast that they watch? It amazes me. Somebody will say something, I think. You listen to Rush Limbaugh today. <laughs> Don't try to be some political guru. You're repeating Rush. Lots of people are non-thinkers. Hitler did this. Hitler changed a nation. Anybody know the story of Hitler? In, in, in how he transformed a nation. He took people that were loved in his nation and turned them into the most hated, despicable, rejected nation in the world by telling them what to think. He made racists out of a whole nation. All he did was start talking. All he did was plant seed. And it transformed and divided a nation. 
Do you realize how big Germany is? Who, who, who knows how big Germany is? A little larger than the state of Ohio. So, do you realize that Germany assaulted Italy, Poland, Russia? Do, yeah, that's just the beginning. I mean, they were... It's only as big as the state of Ohio. Why did those people think they were crazy enough to take on the world? Because somebody told them, we're going to do this. Oh, okay. And they did it. All he did was start speaking to them. And all God wants you to do is just start listening to what the Scripture says. You mean we're supposed to get brainwashed? You're supposed to get your brain tweaked. Let, let's say that. Let, let's say it's a little off kelter. And, but think that we think just like the world tells us to think. Right? The government tells me I'm supposed to weigh 145 pounds. Now, I weigh 182 pounds. And according to them, Every time I go on one of them sites, they tell me, you're obese. I said, I'm not obese. I can still see my feet. I'm, but the government tells me I'm obese. Phyllis tells me I'm lovable. Who am I supposed to believe? But see, we start believing what people tell us. And so God says, look, stop believing what the world says. Start believing what I said. Just read the Bible and then say, God, I thank you that as I'm reading this, this is health to my body. Amen. Now, that doesn't mean that you are exempt from doing anything. But the thing of it is, I'll bet your desires will start changing. Yeah. You'll like maybe wake up and say, hey, I think I'll walk out to the mailbox today instead of driving my car that 50 feet. Amen. That's a beginning. <laughs> Amen? And so... We as Christians need to understand that words have power. And when Jesus tells us do something, we ought to just do it. Somebody say, just do it. Hallelujah. When you just do it, it will work. Remember, every promise has a condition. So it says, just do it. Go and fill the water, the pots with water. Then draw out of it. If you don't, there'll be no wine. Now, you would wonder, when did the water turn to wine? When they drew out of it, it doesn't say. I don't know. But I know that those servants weren't going, hey, man, this thing is, this is just water. But they probably gave it to the governor and said, well, let's see what happens to see what Jesus... Remember, they filled them up to the brim. You can't do anything besides that. You cannot change it. Because it's filled to the brim. They take it. They give it to the king. To the governor. Go, Man, this is so good. They say, get, get out. Get out of here. Where do you think it changed? It didn't change when they drew it. Probably when they put it in his hands. Right? Because they knew where it came from. But he didn't know where. So it still had to look like water with them carrying it. Or they would have said, wow, man, a miracle. Then it would have been all over. But I don't think they did that. I think when they put it in the governor's hands, just like when they took 
and broke the bread, and Jesus said, here, now give it to them. Every time they broke a piece off, it multiplied back. I bet when they put it in his hands, and he drank. That's what I think. If not, they'd have went back and drank all them others, six. I don't know if they did or not. They might have just poured out his water after that. I don't know. All right. So we have to understand that when we do something based on the Word of God, when we just act on it, God can take something natural and transform it into something supernatural. But if we don't act on it, guess what? Nothing happens to the water. It just sits in the pot. So when God gives us a word, then we understand that something old can be transformed into something new simply by obeying a small saying. Fill the water pots with water. Draw out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast. Real simple, isn't it? Let's go to 2 Kings, the third chapter. Just do it. Just do it. You, how many of you remember the story of Naaman? He was a Syrian captain, soldier, and he contracted leprosy. Leprosy was, in the Old Testament, evidently they considered it very highly contagious. They would separate the people that had it from their families. The home was condemned. Uh, they had to get away from everybody, stay away from People excluded, lived in communes, in caves, and so forth. Their families would bring them food, but they were protected in an area, and they could not make contact with people because it was like a plague. And uh, Naaman, uh, one of the kings, had a servant that had been taken captive through one of the battles, and she was a Jewish girl. And she heard of Naaman. And she said, oh, that there were a prophet of God. And now we understand that there is nobody that can do the impossible except those that are connected with God. And so she said, if there was a prophet of God in Syria, she said, he could be healed. Naaman said, oh, really? So he asked, where is a prophet? And guess what? The name Elisha comes up. Naaman comes to Elisha. He's ready to buy his healing. He's ready to pay whatever has to be paid to get this plague off of him. And he comes, and of course, Elisha comes out. Really doesn't even appear to him. He tells his servant, tell him to go and dip seven times into the Jordan, and he'll be healed. Naaman is furious. He says, the guy didn't even come out. He said, well... He gave you a word. It's, it's not the prophet, it's the word. And so Naaman goes and he heads home. He's so mad, man, he could spit nails. And uh, the guy didn't even come out. He rejects his offering. And the guy riding with him starts talking to him. He said, hey, you know what? If he'd have told you to go kill 700 Philistines, you'd say, sure, no problem, and I'll do it. Then you would have thought that was a great feat. He just asked you to dip seven times in that old filthy, muddy Jordan. Naaman said, yeah, yeah, you know, ah, we're this close, let's, let's go. 
So he goes down, dips once, twice, three, four, five, six times, nothing happens. I imagine he's just about ready to say, I'm done with this. But he dips one more time, and he comes up, and his skin is new. He's healed of leprosy. Now, that was just sheer obedience. All he did was do what the Word told him to do. And as he contemplated the Word, guess what? His servant in that chariot kept rehearsing it back to him. Wouldn't you have done this? Yeah, yeah. Pretty soon, here come the voice, the Word in the Word. Then why won't you do what the prophet has asked you to do? You're right. I'm going to do it. A word went from Logos to Rhema, pulls over, dips himself, goes home happy. Amen. Hallelujah. In this passage of Scripture, 2 Kings 3.1, talking about just doing it. And Jehoram, the son of Ahab, now Philip, keep up with me, began to reign over Israel. In Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigneth 23 years. Next verse. What did I say? What did I say? 23 years? Oh, 12 years. Well, move right along. I wanted to give him long life. And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his, his father and like his mother. And he put away the images of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved to and to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Boy, I thought Dosak was a lousy last name. Nebat, which had made Israel to sin, he departed not therefrom. And Mesha, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep master and rendered unto the king of Israel an hundred thousand lambs and hundred thousand rams and the wool that was on him. And it came to pass that when Ahab was defeated or was dead, that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And the king Jeroboam, Jerem, I'm sorry, Jehoram, uh, went out of Syria the same time and numbered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat at the king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab hath rebelled against me. Wilt thou go with me again against Moab to battle? And he said, I will go up. I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. And he said, Which way shall we go? And he answered, The way through the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went, and the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. He must have joined them on the way. And they fetched a compass of seven days journey. And there was no water for the host and for the cattle that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord hath called these three kings, like, duh, you're one of them, together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king, the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Saphat, 
which poureth water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophet of thy father and the prophet of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of, the Mo of Moab. And Elisha said unto the Lord, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not for the regard of the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look towards thee nor see thee. And now be, bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass that when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. In other words, he's got to find the word of God to deliver the word of God. And Jehoshaphat knows they need a word from God. All right. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, make, the valley, make this valley full of ditches. And thus saith the Lord, ye shall not see wind, neither shall ye see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water that ye may drink, both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites into your hand. And ye shall smite every fenced city, every choice city, and shall fall every good tree, and shall stop all the wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. Next verse. Oh, and it came to pass in the morning, when the meat offering was offered, that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And when the Mobanites, Moab, Moabnites, the Sidites, the Sidonites, the Lakeviewites, heard that the king were come up to fight against them, they gathered, and all that were able to put on armor round upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water, and the Mobanites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, oh man, this is blood. The kings were surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. And when they were come to the camp of the Israelites, the Israelites rose up and smote the Mobanites so that they fled before them, but they went forward smiting the Mobanites, Moabites, even in their country. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it, and they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees only in Ker Har-Resheth left the stone thereof. Howbeit the slingers went about it and smote it. How would you like to have a whole bunch of rock slingers with you? That's all they did was just, wow. And when the king of Moab saw the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. And he took his eldest son, 
that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Wow. One act of obedience. One act of obedience transformed a nation from fear to faith. One nation from ruling and plundering to a nation that had been subdued. Just one. Somebody say just one. One act of obedience. There's a story in 2 Kings, the fourth chapter. We're going to end with this. <coughs> Sorry. Would have been worse if I hadn't been kind. Now, in 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, there is a widow. Her husband has been a prophet. He has served Elijah, Elisha. And he comes and he dies. And he leaves a wife and two children. He's indebted up to his ears. And the debtors are coming to lay hold of her children. And they're going to put them into forced labor that pays very little in order to eradicate the debt that the prophet and his family have incurred. She goes to the man of God. Why would she go to the man of God? She needs to hear a word from God. And she says, my husband served you. Now we are in debt and the debtors are coming to take my two sons away. And Elisha looks at her and he says, what do you have in your house? Now Elisha understands that her husband's choice to serve him as a prophet was a life of seed. And he understands that God owes no man anything. So during this time, I'm sure Elisha didn't just say the first thing came to his mouth. He probably said, give me a moment. And he probably asked the Lord, Lord, here's this woman demanding upon me. What should I do? And so Elisha says, go borrow all of the vessels that you can because she told him, I have but a little bit of oil. And a little in a righteous man's hands is plenty in the eyes of God. And then she takes and Elisha says, close all the doors, all the windows. You and your sons go in there and you start pouring that oil into all these borrowed vessels. I could imagine, I would think, that since she was a woman of faith, that she borrowed everything that she could borrow. I mean... Everything's in there, baby bottles, milk bottles, gallon jugs, you know, bowls and, you know, Tupperware, everything's in there, buddy. She starts pouring the oil. And every time she pours the oil, she just goes to another vessel and pours it and pours it and pours it and pours it until they're all full. Then she comes back to the prophet and she says, okay, all the vessels are full. And he said, sell them, eradicate your debt, so that your children can live free and then you and your sons take the rest and you and your sons live off of it. Now that was one act of obedience. Now, didn't just provide, erase her debt and provide for her. It said, 
and provide for your children. You understand that those boys were said, you don't have to work the rest of your life. And our obedience doesn't just affect us. It affects our generations. And you will set up a perpetual wellspring of increase and blessing of your children if they will follow in the ways of the Lord that they will not have to labor like you have labored. And so let them be blessed by your faith and obedience. Amen? Let them be blessed by what you have done with the Lord. Remember that a righteous man lays up for his generation's generation. Could we lay up for our children a life of blessing because of our obedience? Well, certainly we can. You might say, well, I, I do this and I don't make much money. And I... You know what? One of the greatest men that I ever knew in my life was Cork Davis. Corliss Davis was a milk truck driver. He made about $10 an hour for years. And uh, Cork was a unique guy. He we had enough money coming out of high school to buy a new car. But instead of buying a new car, he married his wife and drove the company milk truck, the big white milk trucks, and took his money and bought his first house. He lived in that house until when, really, when he retired. When he retired, he sold that house that he built for about $16,000 for a whole bunch of stinking money. And uh, he added to it, built a swimming pool in the back, and he had lots of things that you wouldn't think that a man that made very little money had. And, uh, but Cork always saved. He had ideas, like he would buy a 24 box of a pop and whenever he wanted a pop he would go to the refrigerator put the dollar in but he only bought the pop for 25 cents but he put a dollar in because that's what it would cost him at the filling station put the dollar in Cork Davis later told my family he said pastor I want to start taking on a vacation I said well we really haven't ever had a vacation we used to go to Phyllis's mother's if that was vacation it was for her. It was torture for me. And, uh, oh, we did go to Florida one time, my brother, my older brother. We ran out of money and we starved on the way back while he ate in the restaurant. How's that fit your shoe, Jack? And anyway, you know, brothers have no mercy. They didn't care if we were dying or living in that truck. We were drinking the, the, the uh, melted ice <laughs> and uh, we had no money, so we didn't eat. And uh, anyway, Cork Davis said, I want to take you on vacation. So he started taking us on vacation every year. Took us on vacation. Took our family on vacation. Took Phyllis and I on vacation. Took us to California. Gosh, took us all over the country, didn't he? And, uh, you know, Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico gosh, Caribbeans. He, he took us everywhere. And... Uh, he had been a father of my friends and of my father's friend, and his father was a bread truck driver besides being a farmer, and every third day or so, his dad would stop at our house and give us uh, the old bread and things of that nature. So his father was providing 
and helping raise me before I ever knew Corliss Davis or Cork Davis. Cork Davis, then a retired, and his wife quit her job. And uh, she was making, she made very good money. She was a pretty up high in the company, uh, an accountant in a big company. And uh, he said, Pastor, he said, a D quit her job today. I said, okay. He said, but I want to assure you, don't be afraid. We're not relinquishing paying tithes. And we aren't going to pay tithes like we ain't got none. We're going to pay the tithes like she's working. I said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I don't know, but isn't God supposed to be God? I said, well, yeah, but, you know, you've got to have common sense. Yeah, well, I'll leave that common sense to other people. He kept paying tithes. At the end of the year, he called me to his house, laid out his tax form, and he said, Pastor, look at my tax statement. I looked at his tax statement, and he had paid the same tithes that he had paid when he was working, not when he retired. But with no extra jobs or anything, he had more reported income than he had had when both of them were working. Pastor, he said, how can that be? I said, I don't know. I thought you told me you'd leave that reasonable stuff to other people. I said, I'm not one of them. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> and we wept together at that table. Corliss Davis was a saver. And Corliss Davis died. Called me to his bedside and gave me this inheritance ring that I wear that people look at me sometimes and say, well, boy, you got that big diamond ring. I just say, you, you, you don't, quiet, shut up. He gave it to me. And since then, he built his wife, right before he died, a new 4,000 square foot home, debt-free, paid for it cash. And she doesn't have to work the rest of her life, though she does work, but she doesn't have to. But she works part-time. Uh, I couldn't be alone with her. She probably can't be alone with herself. <laughs> so, in, sorry, Dee. And, uh, but he left this inheritance to her, having been a milk inspector way back, way back, way back. Corliss Davis was a man of obedience. A man of obedience. He just said, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to back up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to live for God. His dad wasn't saved. And he said, you know, dad, you need to get saved. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. When his dad was about 88 or so, wasn't he, Phyllis? He was pretty old. Okay, Phyllis, I know. It's my story. You leave me alone. And he told his dad, you need Jesus. So one night his dad got up and he said, Cork, he said, I'm going to leave this world. He said, I don't belong here. He said, I'm too old. Cork said, oh, no, dad. He said, no. He said, Cork, this is your world. He said, my world is all gone. And uh, 
So he got up one night, and he said, one day, and he said, Corp, the President of the United States appeared to me in a dream last night. And he talked to me about Jesus. And he told him, well, I, I, I told him I'd think I'd like to receive him. He said, so last night in my dream, I received Jesus. What was I supposed to do? The United States president was there. I, what, is I supposed to, I, what was I supposed to say? Oh, no, you're crazy? Are you kidding? I wasn't going to rebut the president. I gave honor to where honor was due. And he said, I, I received Jesus, Cork. And he said, I, I think I'm going to go home. Cork said, okay. And his dad went home. Dad went home. So, I just encourage you one act of obedience. Just one act of obedience sets in motion a string of events to fulfill destiny. Did his dad have to stop and give my family bread? No. What did it? For some reason, he chose our family. For some reason, he interwove his son's destiny with me. One act of faith. One act of obedience. All God is asking us to do is just do one. What if we had a lifetime of them? The widow woman set her sons free. Could our children be set free by living a life of obedience? Absolutely. I believe that. Could our enemies turn, be turned around and overthrown, never to arise again by one act of obedience? Yeah, absolutely. So all we have to do is just do it. All we have to do is just do it. There is a word in the word, hear the word. That's in the word. And then just do it. Somebody say, just do it. Just do it. It's real easy. Just do it. Amen? Hallelujah. Everybody's heads bow, Father, in the name of Jesus. We want to be just doers. Just doers. Nothing more, certainly nothing less. Just doers. What we hear the words say, we will do. That still small voice that still shakes the foundations of the earth, we await to hear. We bind it about our neck. We think about it. God, we write it on the tablets of our heart. And as we just meditate it, listen to it, a word comes out of a word, a voice out of a voice. God, we thank you today. You are calling us to transform lives. You are calling us, God, to be something that our natural man could never achieve. It's not by the hands of men, though they work on us. God, it is the hand of God.